Hey everybody, my name is Alec, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. Um, so thank you so much to everybody who checked out my episode on A Silent Voice. It means a lot to me that people um, got to hear that and got to hear the stories I tell on that podcast about being a disabled person and growing up as a disabled kid. Um, but if you haven't heard that podcast, it's literally the first one in the it, it's literally the like the next one down from this in the podcast feed and i encourage you to check it out and if you haven't seen that movie um i'm, I'm not sure it's out anymore like it's that it's playing in theaters anymore because it was a fathom event which usually means it's in theaters for literally a weekend and that's all you have to go see it but um it should be coming out on blu-ray and digital and stuff soon and I really encourage you to, at the very least, rent it and see it because it's a really interesting, unique thing, even as far as anime is concerned. So definitely check that out. But also thank you for so many people like listening to that podcast, that episode, and liking it. I, that makes me really happy um, to know that there is an appetite for. That style of my crazy rambling. Now, we're going to be doing something way different today, this time. And um, without further ado, that thing is, the, the show we're going to be talking about today is Shirobako. Shirobako is a weird, it's a weird kind of thing that, um, doesn't, that exists in anime in a different way and has always existed in entertainment, and lots of people call this edutainment. I, I even, in my head, I call it edutainment, which is the combination of education and entertainment for the sake of both. Um... Common versions of this for America are lots of kids' cartoons we all remember, like um, the Magic School Bus was considered was like the premier edutainment show. But also things like Sesame Street 
Um, in anime, edutainment shows are a bit... They're a bit odd, because they are more focused on, like, driving a certain thing than teaching about, uh, like, a subject. So in the Magic School Bus, like, Miss Frizzle and her class would, like, shrink down and go inside the human body, and you'd learn about the human body that week. Um, and it would be, like, a zany thing with Miss Frizzle! Um, but in anime, like a show like Silver Spoon, the point is, um, to teach the viewer about something because the show intrinsically wants the viewer to do something like that. So, um, and actually the, like, genre of, like, rural farm edutainment anime it's like its own thing. There's um there's Silver Spoon that talks about it. There's um another one about an idol that moves out to the country and becomes a farmer. I forget what it's called. I watched like two episodes of it. Um, <laughs> um I watch I watch disparate episodes of like lots of things. It's like, ah, maybe later. Or ah, maybe never again. <laughs> but um another show that actually got reincarnated as a live action like, a live-action slash CG thing for a while was called Moyashimon. And Moyashimon is all about, like, microbes and, like, all sorts, like, how people use microbes to, like, make bread and make cheese and, like, all of these things. And those are, um, really... They serve as advertisements, almost for, you know, moving out to the country and starting a farm, basically. Um, there was another one, um, a couple seasons ago about a girl, and don't kill me because I don't remember the name of this show, about a girl who, um, moved out, who got a job as be being, like, the queen, uh, being the queen of this, like, obscure prefecture in the middle of nowhere in Japan, and, um, like, she had this whole troop of girls that worked with her. It's actually a really good show. I wish I could remember the name. Um, but the, um, the whole goal of lots of these shows is to entice people to participate in that lifestyle. It would be like if Miss Frizzle went to, like, a farm and was like, isn't farming great? And I have a really bad Miss Frizzle voice. But um, and she was like, isn't farming great? And then, like, all the kids were like, yeah, I'm really into this. Um, and... Uh, that is the goal of a lot of, like, what I think of as, like, Silver Spoon farming edu edutainment shows, for lack of a better phrase. But Shirobako is different, because it's not, its goal isn't to tell you, okay, look, this is why you want to be in animation. Its goal, at least as I see it, is to 
show you what the process of creating an anime from start to finish, more or less, actually kind of entirely, and show you the kinds of people who are in it, who are in anime, which I think is important and I'll get to later, um, and the kind of blood, sweat and blood weight that goes into making like thirteen, thirteen episodes, thirteen to twenty-four episodes of any given show. Let's say I'm not counting things that are like never-ending slogs like Dragon Ball Z or One Piece. Those, those are a whole, those are a whole thing. And what I find interesting about shows like this is that they. I know a lot about them because when I was a burgeoning art student, I sought to be in the animation industry because, of course, I did. I've loved anime since I was, like, nine. And, yes, that's right. It's been two decades of me stuffing this stuff in my, fa in my eye sockets endlessly. But, um... The... The thing about um, anime production and the thing about any kind of production of popular art that and that includes animation, film, advertising, comic books, manga, all of it, music, even is that the the skill set is forged it isn't forged in everyone and the skill set that everyone has and brings to the table is different and there's this odd there's this odd facet of this show of Shirobako that posits that, like, all of these people are, like, weird and off-kilter, but they all make these shows, but they all make in these shows, at least in the fictional universe of Chirobako, that tons of people watch. These, like, group of ragtag weirdos make, produce pop culture produce a season of pop culture and deliver it to people. And uh, this, this show's nearest, like, nearest neighbor is a show and a manga that um, did not exactly light the world on fire because people found it um, a combination of soul-crushing and boring, which I understand, called, um, oh, what's it called? The show about... Um, um, manga art, about mangaka. Um, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm blanking hard, man. Had a weird day. Um, but it was, it was written by the guy who wrote, um, who wrote, uh, Death Note. Um, but, Bakuman. Bakuman is kind of Shirobako's nearest like, neighbor of a show, of a kind of show, it, that 
Shirobako is, where Bakuman seeks to it it doesn't do a great job entertain the viewer at but also inform the viewer of the process of writing manga in the modern day manga landscape of basically what it's like to start um to write manga from start to finish for a for a popular publication. There was another show that was last season and it just popped into my head and I really liked it and I have to finish it about a um girl who writes manga badly <laughs> and like her editor always like shits all over her pages like nobody's business but she lives with other well-published, well-established mangaka girls in like um in like a mangaka dormitory kind of thing and i just uh, that show uh i forget what it's called but that show really like like captured me in a way that like i and it and that show is also it is infinitely more technologically accurate probably than um bakuman uh, and now it's killing me that I can't remember that show. I'm not doing not doing great on the naming category here. Um, but <laughs> anyway, so but the problem with the um, latter of the two, Bakuman, is it feels much closer to reality because it it really shows the grind of the characters in that show, like doing the work and sitting there and drawing the pages and inking the pages and like erasing and brushing and all the things you do because I also for a period of time drew manga not that was published anywhere and not that you will probably ever see but um Bakamon takes you through and shows you the like hard work of, like, the physical creation of manga, which is interesting to me, because I'm like, oh, I recognize all of this, but to lots of people, they're just like, ah, it's boring, and why don't the love care the love interests get together already? This seems dumb in a way that I don't want to accept. Um, but so, anyway, Shirobako, what I'm trying to say is Shirobako is not alone in this endeavor of trying to like it inform in an entertaining way of how Japanese pop culture is produced. Um there's also individual episodes of shows that do this. Like there's an individual episode of um what's it called? Um the cult classic Um, Satoshi Kon saying, um, oh God, what is, what is it? I'm, I'm really drawing a blank here. Um, Paranoia Agent. There's a, there's an episode of Paranoia Agent that's all about a shitty production runner. And like, the production runner just being bad at a job, but also maybe the entire production being right fucked from the word go, which is really, like, it just, uh, it seems like the realest shit. That, and then, of course, there is, 
um, an old show from the 90s called Animation, from the early 2000s, actually, that I had an opportunity to compete as the voice actor, uh, compete to be a voice actor for, and just was like, nope, don't want to do that, called Animation Runner Karomi. That's about an actual animation runner. Um, there's also an episode of Golden Boy, uh, the, the penultimate episode of Golden Boy, actually, like the finale, is Golden Boy is um, the the main character works as a production as a producer or like the lead producer essentially for an animate for an animation for an anime studio, and they all start to get at. All of those episodes start to get at what Shirobako is all about, and that is the like the nuts and bolts that go into of producing an anime front to back, like I said before. But and what lots of people point to about this show is different than what I want to point to, and lots of people will point to the. The cameos in the show, there's cameos for all kinds of directors and, like, quote-unquote infamous people in, like, anime history and the the anime creator universe. Um, My personal favorite is they straight up have Hideki Anno in there, and he's like a weird, he's like a tracksuit weirdo, um, (laughs) living in a fucking bunker. But what it folk what it focuses on in specifically in the episode where um the main character Mia Mori Ali uh, like tracked down Ano, who I think they straight up call Ano, um, is that these. All of these characters, all of these people have done shit you have no idea about. So, um, and let me let me make sure I get this guy's name right because it's important. Um, there's a character who you see in the background of the first season of the show, and he's kind of just this elderly animator who, um, just like. He just doing his job day in day out, and he just he he leaves at a specific time. He does everything. It, his name is um Mom um Momose, and he he just like doing he's just like doing the work of being a seasoned animator and just drawing his draws his keyframe, does the best he can goes home. Um and you get a this like mentor moment with him between him and Emma who is one of the four girls that they focus on throughout the show who were all in a high school animation club together and they produced this thing called the Golden Battle of the Gods which was like an amateur which was a Fawn amateur, like they, they drew everything, they colored everything, they put it on a DVD, and they showed it. They showed it at the school festival, and they voice acted it all. 
um, production that they did, which really, which if you've ever wondered, like, could I really do that? You totally could. It just takes a lot of fucking work. Like the 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 kind of opening, the opening of the first episode where they're like sitting there with manuals and they're like patiently drawing and like they're filling color in and Photoshop and all this other stuff. That's really what it's like. That's what it's like even when I do illustrations for me because I, um, I draw almost every day. Like it's a, like it's an affliction. Like if I don't, I'll die. (laughs) And for me, it's a really meditative, like fulfilling thing. And I, when I was an anim, when I was, when I was training to be an animator, I, I, I draw, I, and I still do. I drew in a very specific way to make movement easier on me, basically. And, <laughs> and I was thinking when I was watching this show, I'm like, I draw like an animator. I don't, I, most of the time, could not give two shits about the background in my head. I'm like, somebody else will make the background of this scene. I give shit about, like, the character and the accuracy of the, like, proportions and all that stuff. Um, but what I perceive as accuracy of proportions or what my brain puts out of the stylus into my iPad, which sometimes does not go well. But there's this great scene where uh, Momose says to Emma, because Emma is concerned about like drawing something correctly he says and he says something that anybody in a creative field for long enough learns that yes you can obsess and obsess and obsess and obsess and obsess but there's a deadline that you have to meet and ultimately nothing matters if you don't get it in by that deadline if you don't get your work in by the deadline no one will ever see it, so its quality is invalidated. And that sounds really cruel, and it's not it, like not really invalidated. Yes, for you as you, it's like it's still fulfilling to know that you did a good job, but like the actual thing you were trying to achieve was not achieved. <laughs> and he says, you know, draw for speed, basically is what he tells her, and she looks at him like. He's this crazy, weird old man. And he's like, if, you know, draw for speed for now. Draw draw for speed and, like, accuracy is a close second. And eventually you'll get better. But right now, you just need to push out the keyframes. Um, and lots of times anima- animation... And anime, in particular, can get, like, analytical. Like, the fandom can get really analytical. I try not to do that on this show unless shit's, like, handshakers bad and I can't fucking stand it. Because I have done animation. I I have, I ha- I mean, I've got open tunes on my computer. I open it up. I fuck with it. I, like make someone turn their head, and I'm like, ah, I'm satisfied, and I move on. Um, 
And one day I might go totally insane and like make an animation. I've done that before. And I've done it like the new digital way and the old, like not, not quite, I haven't painted cells because I'm not, I'm not insane, but, um, I have done the, like, I have done the full animation disc peg line, checking the cells like they do, checking my frames the way they do in this show kind of animation and I ha I have done keyframes and in-betweens and all that stuff. So I know exactly how much work goes into animation and go and goes into the goes into the cre goes into the attempt of creating reality and um so I'm a little bit more forgiving when, like, maybe a character gets a little wonky because the even if you're just so let's say so, so let's run down some animation basics. Um, generally, animation is done in 24 frames per second. That means every second you're seeing 24 frames of animation, and it's usually done. So what usually happens is the keyframe animators animate the start and end of a f movement, unless there's some soccer shit going on, and then they animate the whole movement. So let's say a animator wants to animate someone brushing their teeth, which it happens in um, actually in this show in Shirabako. They'll animate the person picking up the tooth, like the first frame of the person picking up the toothbrush, the toothbrush in the mouth, and the toothbrush like brushing at like two intervals, meaning just brushed and starting. And then that the in-betweens, which means which is all the little like slight motions that happen in between the the key the key poses is done by someone else and that's a very insane job that's usually done by people in not great countries called in-betweeners and lots of times that stuff is sent to korea um china all, all kind all kinds of weird ass countries and sometimes it is done in in japan there are a places that do nothing but in between Japan too and they are weird nightmare mutants capable more than I will ever be capable of because they do the bulk of the actual like of the brushing of someone's teeth and but the key point is when you learn animation as a discipline you don't learn just how to do keyframes. You don't learn just how to do in-between because those two skills when you're learning animation are inseparable. Later on, you like, can, you go down the path of being a key animator or an in-betweener. What they call an in-betweener, which is the person who does the in-between frames. And it's... But even if you're a key animator, 
you are still drawing dozens of and dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds and sometimes even thousands and thousands of frames of animation. Even if you're not doing it on cells, which involves paint and lots of accuracy and like it is I have done it. It I've done it not willingly, but I've done it. It it is akin to painting on glass. Is the best way I can put it. Um, even if you're not doing it on cells and you're just drawing on paper and that paper is then taken and colored in Photoshop or whatever, that is still the amount of cells you do doesn't lessen. And so when like somebody slips up, that sometimes means that they've been doing this shit for five hours straight. And yeah, someone's nose gets a little weird in like a frame for a second. I will dismiss it. And handshakers, it's a different thing. That shit show is a nightmare. And it has a sequel! Prepare to be sick to your stomach again, which is amazing. Um, but my point is, is that Shirobako shows the practice shows that the kind of ungodly perfection that people perceive anime to have, anime to have. It doesn't have it, it at its at its best. Anime knows how to use its resources in a way where you would never tell how little resources they have. And this, the show when the show came out in two thousand fifteen, it was like a a freaking like it's like a tidal wave hit the fandom. Because everybody watched the show, anybody who, like, respected themselves as an anime fan watched the show because it was, it was about the creation of the thing we love, A. And B, it, like, pulled back the curtain on how close the deadlines were, how, cl how little money there was to some productions, how, like insane some of the creators are some like specifically the character who um plays the director i forget his name um he he is like just this big old nerd and he's lovable but he's also super super um irresponsible and, like, just a weird dude. And this show, fo like, makes characters out of these people and, like, shows you these people and how odd they, they can be. But what it also does is it shows you that these people aren't, like, they, they aren't the saints that people protest them to be. There's this, there's this idea that happens in in any kind of creative, in any kind of creative anything where there can be fandom, that the like lead 
the leaders of that creative anything or anybody who creates in that in that field is a certain way and is like has a certain set of traits and is this like idealized thing. So to give you an example, when when I say I was a graphic designer, a bunch of things pop into your head. And you think a lot of very specific things based on all of your experience, based on all the experience that people have with graphic designers. You could be very wrong. You're probably very wrong. Uh, You could be partially right. You probably are. But the thing that's so interesting for me having gone through school for animation and having like no known about the craft of it and having a decent guesstimation of how much it costs um which they do have a great breakdown of in um in Shirabaka they have a breakdown of how much like uh, like 10 seconds of animation costs and blah 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 and those numbers were like stunning to lots of people but to people who were animators or who really understood the industry we were all like no that makes sense but um the thing that this show does is it shows the animators the production artists the voice actors the directors the episode directors as real people at the background the one of my favorite characters in the second season is the chronically drunk old hat background artist who's a goddamn genius um and it by giving by taking these characters and taking these people who you know from their public appearances and their mythos and their name on the credits of your favorite show and bringing them and bringing those positions down to earth it it get it gets you closer to what reality is and it gets you closer to like the fact that this that these things are only accomplishable with a lot of money a lot of luck and like just barely enough time and it that's in, that's important because Shirobako is i i often I, I often while i was rewatching it for this podcast thought to myself like i wonder how many people uh, like i'm sure i'm sure it's still a known quantity but i wonder how many people go back and watch this show because it it, it feels less surprising every time you watch it because you realize like oh oh that's yeah that that's where this happens but also all like all the fun of seeing the cameos is kind of lost um but it it's still an important it's still an important thing because it's a documentation of what the in- of how the industry functions and how the industry functions as it's at its full capacity this, this is a 
this is a very different this would be a very different show if it was made just after the bubble burst for anime um which if you don't know there was lots of there was lots of fucked up licensing practices that caused anime licenses to get too expensive and then like slightly before the whole party went off the side of a cliff with the financial collapse of first America and then most of the world um anime the anime bubble bursts and we got like no new licenses in America for many many a month slash years and that was largely due to um piracy to the industry not being able to adjust to the way piracy happened so if you ever wondered like why am i paying for this streaming service or that streaming service or any of them uh, it's because that's part of the revenue model of the way anime is made now and like anime streaming is a big deal so if not enough people watch something and it's not it's not like it's not as simple as by watching an anime on Crunchyroll that studio the studio that made the anime and those creators get some of that money some of that does happen i'm not trying to be out here and say like it's you know petulance it's more that if and this is happening so, this is happening somewhat with shows on um Amazon because Amazon does not have a great way to get it sh- to get its shows out there for people to see at, like on the internet just like as like uh, oh that show's airing I should go watch that um which is unfortunate because they have the noise they paid a lot I imagine a lot of money for the Noitamina block. And so all of like this cool experimental anime goes over to Amazon, locked behind like a paywall. It used to be a double paywall, which was banana which would banana pants. Um and but now it's just a normal paywall of like whatever it costs to have prime per month. Um I pay yearly, so whatever. Um, it, it, you watching on legal streaming services gives the studio a real look at how well stuff does, at how much of an impact what they're doing makes. So, um, and what's it called? Um, And some of that has to do with like Blu-ray sales and merchandise sales, and like you like go out and buy figures of like your of like your waifus and stuff. But for the for the most part, there's a kind of TV like Nielsen-esque function to, and Nielsen is like a TV rating system. Nielsen-esque function to watching on streaming services because. The studios see that stuff, and it is easy for the studios to see that stuff because part of their agreement is they get to see how their shows are doing. And if they know that, like, oh hey, uh, 
this is doing okay on TV, but it's doing great on Crunchyroll. They know that there is need enough to make another season of that show. That there will be demand for another season of that show. That they will be able to sell a license for that show, at the very least. Maybe down the line, DVD licenses and all that stuff. But, I would, which means that they get to keep paying people. Um, so, recently, Trigger start, started a Kickstarter. Started a, um, I, I think Trigger started a Kickstarter. I don't think it was a, Go, a GoFundMe. But, um, because Trigger started a Kickstarter, by doing that, they allow themselves to become a little untethered from only doing things demanded by, you know, popular culture. So let's say, you know, Trigger doesn't want to make a giant, another giant robot show, but next year, giant robot shows are all the rage, and, like, everybody's made one. And Trigger's just like, we don't want to do that. If they have money from directly from their consumers instead of through the pipeline, they can function a little bit easier outside of the current system and make the show they a show they believe in that they want to make. Um, there's a scene in Shirobako. Um, there are two specific scenes in Shirobako about this. The first one is a kind of setup scene for the second season where they go into a um meeting with a publisher and they and they're going after the idea of, and they're going after this IP for a like a Moe military pilot girl pilot sh show um and i think it's called like Girls Last Tour, not Girls Last Tour, um, something like that. Um, but they go after that because they, they, because early in that episode, they're talking about that show and the potential of them as a studio making that show, and they're really, they're really into it. So they go, and their current show is doing really well. And the current show in the first season is called Exodus. And it's just... It's... So... <laughs> something I appreciate about... Shirobako. And actually also about... Um, Genshiken. Is... They have these fictional shows. And in Genshiken, they broke that fictional show out into a real show. Which takes a certain amount of hilarious balls. But in... Um, Shirobako, the fiction, you only ever get, like, bits and pieces of the fictional show, um, one of which, it's just a cowboy showing up in a tunnel to, like, help the, like, fictional three girls of Exodus with a thousand wild stallions, and the only word he says is, howdy. And it's just, it's really just the the way they use the like potential crazy of writing an anime that is doing really well because it goes so far off the way the rails in a really specific way. It's just 
It shut the best. Shut the best. Um, it fe the the like finale they proposed for Exodus feels because you're only getting bits and pieces of it. You're not getting all the like specifics of it. You're just getting like the overarching. And then like a cowboy shows up and he's got all these stallions. He's just like howdy. And then like they ride the stallions into the sunset while the police chase them and then they disappear from a stage. It feels. Like, that show is going off the rails the way Darling in the Franks, which I will get to at some point on this podcast as soon as I have the tolerance to watch the rest of it, because I hear it's insane. Um, it's like, the way Darling in the Franks went so sideways is the way you feel like at least Exodus is going, but you're not sure because you don't have the connecting tissue. To know if it's good or not, but it's just, it's just really it's really funny <laughs> to me. Um, but um, also it feels like you're getting like the plot of you at least the second the first show you're getting the plot of this show like as a third hand account kind of in a game of telephone, which is hysterical. Um. But these, they go after they go after like like Aerial Girl Squad. I think is actually what it's called. Um, and because they want to make that show, and because their ratings of the last show were so good, they have the breathing. They have the room, like professionally, to do that, and that's why it's important for you to like not go to pirate sites and pirate anime because those ratings translate to A, a second season for that show, B, those studios being allowed to make other shows because not everyone has the like cult, weird cult following of Trigger to be able to launch an independent funding stream for whatever they want to do. And it so here is the thing that I think is the most honest about Shirobako. Even though Shirobako never really never really brings this up, is that anime, with the exception of the graph they show you in the show, anime is an expensive thing to produce. Animation is an expensive thing to produce. One of the reasons why we see so much more CG animation now is because that stuff can be made without A, the like raw materials of hand animation, and B, can be reused. Once you make a once you make a rigged doll in let's say Blender, which is a 3D program, or probably more realistically Cinema 4D that doll can be used in a variety of different situations. You can use all kinds of filters and lighting effects. You can drop it in and out of scenes. Uh, the process of anim of animation of the doll is much less... has a much less stop-and-go scenario. Uh, one person can do... One person, given the doll, the background, and... 
maybe whatever objects they have to interact with can kind of compose an entire scene and animate it themselves, if need be. Now, that doesn't mean that that's always how it works. There's a crushing look at what it's like to be a commercial CG artist in this show as well, um, that centered around um, uh, that se- that centers around Misa in the first in the first um, in the first season of the show. Um, but the financial cost of making hand drawn animation is sometimes prohibitively expensive. That's why that's why lots of times when you see like all the cars are done in CG or all the or like in um Aerial Girls tour or whatever the second show in that they're making in Shirobako is they do all the planes in CG. It's because they can keep reusing those planes. When it's time to have an air fight, they go get the plane, they stick it in the thing, and they zoom it around. And that means that the... That means that the A, they spend less resources making it, and B, they spend less time, giving them more time overall to, like, make a scene and, like, run it and do a whole thing. Um, now, the other thing about Shirobako that they highlight, that they highlight in the show is this kind of, like, worry about CG and why CG, why CG is seen as this, like, big ominous thing in anime because everybody's worried that hand animation will disappear. But the show posits that hand hand animation will always have a place because see, not only does hand animation have a different feel, but CG animation is still animation. The like the basic principles of animation, the basic principles of human movement, all this other stuff. If you do that stuff without, if you try to animate without knowing that, you will, you'll, you'll hit a roadblock because your animation won't look real. Your animation won't look fluid. It'll look stilted. And you can see that in shows like, um, in like bad CD, CG shows like, wait for it, full circle, handshakers. Handshake, handshakers biggest problem is that it doesn't manage the all the movement on screen in a way that <laughs> doesn't result in you almost puking if you look at it for too long. It's like it's like looking into the abyss and it's staring back at you and saying you're going to throw up now. Um but it's just Shirobako is so interesting to me because it's so about the people who create the stuff we all love. And it's about them as people. And um, I started to get into this earlier and got sidetracked into a different part of the show. But there's a scene in the first, in the kind of like tail end of the first season of Shirobako where 
um, where Miyamori goes to Ano and she wants to ask him to do these cut to do these animation cuts for them because they don't have anybody who's to her knowledge they don't have anybody who's capable of doing animation for um of animating horses and uh, this is a really real thing is that animators get known for certain kinds of things like um take Hayao Miyazaki for example grumpy anime grandpa um he has this meticulousness to his machine that is unlike anything you'll really see anywhere else and uh, he 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 has this it's really funny cuz he would probably like find me and murder me um if he heard me say this but he has this otaku quality when it comes to him talking about things like airplanes and stuff where he like goes out and gets a toy plane and studies it and like copies it and or even uh, so th- I think I have a review of this in the podcast somewhere but there's a film called um, Kingdoms of Dreams and Madness it's a documentary about ab- about Miyazaki but also about Studio Ghibli, it's forming and it's like eventual slight decline into something else and then like reascendance out of that as Miyazaki makes um his first CG animated feature. But um uh, there's a scene in the end of the movie, by the way, spoilers, where Miyazaki is about to announce that he's retiring. And they have this hotel. They have this, like, hotel conference room that they always get when they're about to announce a new thing so they don't have to invite everybody into a crazy fucking studio because animation studios are always... Even even if they're CG animation studios, animation studios are always insane. <laughs> like, that, that... They're, like... But especially hand animation studio, there's paper everywhere, there's, like... People have toys, people have models, people have, like, just, like, their space set up. I mean, even my podcasting space, I, I'm surrounded by anime figures, and I, for my um, drawing purposes, have, like, those, like, body coon models to, like, pose and, like, be like, okay, how would this pose work and blah, 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 blah. That's a lot of how animators desks look they have a lot of like stuff that is there taking up space but it's for a specific and valuable purpose um but the so he's in this conference room and they have a little aside with him and he looks out over the over the roofs outside of the conference room and he talks about looking at the roofs when he when they announced that they were going to start production on Princess Mononoke. And there's a scene in Princess Mononoke where um, Son, the wolf girl, is running along the roofs of Iron Town. And they, they show it for a few seconds in the documentary. And then you realize that those roofs in Iron Town are the roofs from the view of this conference room. And it's this 
it's this moment where you're not sitting with the most famous, you know, anime director or animate or animator, one of the most famous animators in the world in history. And I'm not, don't think I'm being hyperbolic there. He's one of the most famous animators in history. You're sitting with a craftsman, an artist, someone who has spent their lifetime doing this, and it, and you see it. You you see it in a way that I I had never seen it before in him, and I was like, holy shit, wow, this guy, and Shirabako does that for all of its characters. It does that for all, for its produ- for its producers. It does that for its animators, the directors, the voice talent. Uh, it, it does that actually the, in the most kind of fascinating way for the Foley guys. The and if you don't know what Foley is, Foley is the sound effects for anime, meaning when you hear somebody walking down a hallway, that sound was captured somehow. And Miyamori has to go deliver this instrument to the um, Foley studios so they can do background music, or what's more commonly referred to as BGM. And the crazy-ass Foley recorder, it's like... It's like, hey, you, come here, put these shoes on, walk across this, like, two square foot of tile floor. And then he, like, directs it, and she, like, okay, and, like, puts these heels on, and they, like, record a walking sound. And then he's like, come here, roar into this microphone like an adorable girl. And she's like, wow. And then he shows her how he takes all of that stuff and turns it into what will be used for a show. And she never knew that. And this show's depiction of the craft of animation and the craft of creating a believable... of creating... of recreating reality for the purpose of telling a story is real. It's something that you don't that you don't see that you don't see displayed seriously at least for animation often enough you don't see it displayed for lots of things often enough another great style of this first show is that slightly it's slightly less um like one to one is um the show New Game, and I I think I did an episode on New Game. But it, that show also shows, like, this is what go- really goes into designing a video game, and this is what goes into, like, specifically character design and modeling and all this other stuff. But, um... The other... The last thing Shobako does is it charts what it's like to start working in the creative industry in a, and this is really, really, really important, a non-creative capacity. And when I tell you that the most important people in a, like an advertising agency 
are not necessarily the creatives, although they are insanely important, I'm not exaggerating. Because when I've worked in advertising or, you know, magazine publishing or managing a website or any of that stuff, I, I can do the best job in the world. And I can do, I can, like, create exactly what they need. But the thing that is important is the management of me as a resource. And that sounds, that sounds like I'm copping out. Like I, but if a, if a creative team of any kind, an animation studio, a, um, advertising agency, a graphic design company, studio um has a good has good management of its time and resources then it will be way more successful than if it's a bunch of geniuses let loose to do whatever they want and uh, Mia Mori the character Mia Mori is uh like uh, starts out starts out in the show as a production assistant as a as one of two production assistants. And we'll get to the other one in a second. We'll get to you, Tar Taro, in a second. Because I have some thoughts... I have some thoughts about Taro that are not common, for the record. Um, but the... It's, so they show her... Like, doing her best to get the job done. And doing her best to, you know, ma manage the whole project and keep everything together. And she keeps encountering these, like, uh, things that aren't even, like, like, d that she has to, like, mediate creative differences between a hand animator and the CG, and a, and a CG animator, or uh, a 3D animator. She has to, you know, work with somebody who's an old friend of hers, but still be able to take cuts back to, um, Maya, or, or Emma, rather, and say, like, these were rejected, <laughs> you need to redraw them. Um, and all of that stuff takes, a, like, a professional knowledge, and it's a very, you see her learning on the job. But then in the second season, she's made the, le the, the producer, like, the person where you see credit, producer, Miyamori Alley, on the, like, end credits of a show, and she is running the whole show, and they and they show her like basically shadowing the director, screaming at him to get a job done better. <laughs> for a period of time, they like show what it looks like when stuff spins so far out of her control she can't handle it, and then like another person steps in to help her, and they show that that's okay. But what they also show is they show. They show, and I think this is really smart, because not everybody who watches anime, certainly not everybody who watches anime, is like me. Not everybody understands intrinsically what it takes to animate something. By the way, I don't necessarily have that something. I'm just saying, like, I look at animators, I'm like, I know what you have. I'm capable of the A to B to C process of it but I don't think I have the heart to complete it, it all the way to Z. 
it knows that not everybody watching the show is like that. And if I had to fault Bakuman for anything, I would fault Bakuman for saying, for looking at its audience and saying, you know, everybody wants to be a manga. Everybody who watches this is thinks they are capable of drawing manga. But the thing is, is that there comes a point at which you realize, I am not capable of this. Or, or even more importantly, like, I, I love this, but I don't want to do this as a living, and, like, I'm going to put this aside, and this is going to be for me. Like, I am capable, I, Alex, am capable of drawing comics. I know how to do it. I understand, like, the concepts of panels of time. I understand the concepts of the page. I understand all of that stuff. I don't necessarily want to do that because I know what doing that entails and I like I like eating. I like having time to eat is what I'm saying. I also don't want to be an animator because I like sleeping in a bed, not in a sleeping bag under my desk next with my head next to an empty ramen container, which is a thing that happens. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Also, I like making more than two bucks an hour. Um, also a thing that happens. Not kidding. Um, but Shirobako chooses to focus on as as its main main character, chooses to focus on someone who realizes that they are not that the thing that they are good at is not the artistic side of it. The thing that they have chosen to be good at to get to be good at is the production side, the act of like basically willing this thing out the door every week <laughs> or like at the last second or whatever it is. And that opens the door up to more people to watch it and to really relate to it because they, they're not expected to spend the entire time with Emma as an animator for, but that it's also important that that stuff is in there because uh, the scene when um, Anno says you did a scene when Anno is approached by another ant really when Anno is approached by a by Miyamori to do the horse scene and he says you have somebody who can do this and that's when he bring he brings up Momosei and he says you know Momosei is a really talented animator he did this he he was the lead animator for a show about animals and it happened to be Miyamori's favorite show the thing that like made her fall in love with anime which is a thinly veiled allusion to Heidi Girl of the Alps um, <laughs> called um, Andy's Chucky Mountain Hedgehog, um, which is to be like play the last. They play the ending theme at some point in the show as the end in the second season as the ending theme of the show, and it's kind of phenomenal. Um, but uh, you see that 
Momose, you see in that moment that Momose is a master animator. He's supremely talented and he's supremely skilled. And he, after helping them finish, finish off the final cuts for Exodus, he says, like, I want to hold a workshop for all the other animators once a week where, like, I take them through some stuff and show them how to do some stuff that they never learned and never had the opportunity to learn. And that stuff is really valuable for people like me who are watching it, people who their primary interface with anime is not the, like, nerdy part of it, the, like, and I'm not degrading this, it's not the, like, counting the keyframes and clicking forward once by once, but appreciating the, like, full artistic brunt of it. But the fact that it follows a character like Miyamori allows people who want to work in the anime industry but don't have the technical artistic skill and talent require, required of animators to know, oh, I could do that. I could be a producer. I could be, like, uh, I could be a production assistant. You know, I could be an office manager. I could be any number of these things. And then we get to Taro. Who just, and I've heard lots of people talk about Taro and say, like, he's just the guy who gets everything wrong. But I, I think it's interesting in this show that they are so, they are so, um, that the studio is so hesitant to fire anybody. And there's a point at which the, I, I, I would have fired a character, not Taro, but a different character. And The, but the reason why I bring it up with Taro is because it's what the moment go, he's just like he means well, but he doesn't get the job done, and like he does, like it doesn't, it never really works out for him. Uh, but you see everybody else in the, you see everybody else in the production department, and for the most part, they're pretty buttoned up. They're like they come to work, they get their job done, and Yes, they love anime, but they don't. Their debt, like their part of the giant table they work at, is kind of like devoted to work. Taro, on the other hand, and this says a lot about his character too. He's got like anime figures and anime and like anime merchandise on his, on his, um, on his desk, and he, he and he. Also, dress pretty trendily, which means that he like, he, and he he tried to like not say this when somebody asked him when somebody in second season asked him like, why do you work at why do you work at an anime company? And he's like, because there's a lot of business potential, and they're like, that's bullshit. And the real reason he probably works in an anime company is because he really truly loves anime and like yes he may have some like dumb opinions about why he loves the anime he loves but he really truly loves it so what 
that does for the character is even when he messes up, even when he, like, the job doesn't get done, yes, people get pissed at him because a job is now not done, but they also realize, like, he's trying his damnedest, he's trying his best. We should, like, at least understand that he's doing his best. Um, but there is another character um, named, I think his name is Daisuke, and Daisuke is, yeah, Daisuke is a different case. Daisuke is the character I would have fired. Because, and this is, this is really, this is a real thing in the creative industry. Um, I, oftentimes, if somebody is good at something, that is enough in a creative industry, that is enough to get them by and enough to make them a consistent paycheck all the time. But if somebody's excellent at something, they generally don't stay doing that thing for very long because the people around them recognize you're excellent at this. You deserve to make more money. You deserve a better title. Like, and they open up the necessary doors for that person to like go to the next level. Uh, the difference between Miyori, Miyamori and Daisuke is Miyamori aspires to like an excellence. She wants to do the best job possible. Just passing the finish line isn't good enough for her. She wants to be first and be fastest and be the most flashy and it, because she wants to do the best job possible, that's the real reason why she ends up getting a promotion, most likely, is that the um, awesome head of the studio, head of Misashi Animation, thinks sees her trying her best and doing her best and, like... Fighting against, fighting against reality in lots of cases to, like, eke out wins and says, she's the kind of person who can really produce a show. And so they give her a promotion. When they hire Dice K, you find out that Dice K has um, been working in the industry for years. He has been working in anime production for five years at seriously big studios, like massive studios, the kinds of studios, like they talk about Canon and like they have all these different like versions of real anime studios and he lists big ones. Like you list production IG as a studio or um, they call it, I think, GI productions in the show, which is great. It's like barely a thin veiled reference, which is great. But, um, the thing you come to find out over the second season is that there's a reason why he's only ever been a production assistant. Why he's never been the actual producer. And that's because he doesn't, he's shifted into this mode where he doesn't care. Where he just, he's just doing the work. And as you come to find out, he's just barely doing the work. 
and that it's like it, 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 from the second they hire him, he treats Miyamori like she's lesser than him because she hasn't done the appropriate amount of time to be a for the head of a production desk, and that's just that's just glib and like it, really sad in a way, and like he. He treats every celebration that the studio invites him to like a bother. And he... Uh, there's a love of anime that's missing from him. He clearly, at some point, had it. But now... Him having the job of production assistant at what the show tells you again and again is a well-regarded great great place to work and well-regarded animation studio it's just a job he happens to have not a job that he wants to have and the great the great like scene and line of dialogue about this concept in um a devil wears prada where the where Stanley Tucci says to Anne Hathaway, like, the job that millions of girls want, you only happen to have, or something like that. And he, and he, in saying that, he says to her, basically, you know, why the fuck are you here? Why do you, why, why, why do you want this job? Why do you want a paycheck from this building? And ultimately, Daisuke is, like, he's confronted by that, and he has to do some, like, some looking inward, and some, and he has to understand that, you know, it's not such a bad thing that guys like Taro are so go-getter, and so, like, like, yeah, he's kind of a confident asshole lots of times, Taro. But the fact that he wants to do his best and he just fucks up a lot is miles better than just barely doing the bare minimum. Because, you know, and they they focus on Taro fucking up specifically in an episode in um the first season, but also a lot just in the first season. Like, Taro just kind of screws up. But... In the second season, you note the thing that you notice, at least with Taro's character, is there's less, there's less world-ending fuck-ups that he has. He has like it's clear that he's learned something, and now he's just like he's getting the job done. The job, like he's in charge of episodes, and he's getting them done. But with Dice. But with Daisuke, he's so disengaged and he's so flat out disrespectful to people because he believes that he ha- that he has been doing this for so long that it is his specialty that it it ends with a fight. It ends with a like the the only fight the only fight scene in the show where it's like everything gets real shonen animated up until. The office manager is like, fuck off, and threatens to, like, can both of them immediately if they ever fight again. Which, um, 
office manager's name is because she's awesome. Um, Yuka is like, but I I will not accept fucking violence in this bullshit. You, if you wanna if you wanna start Fight Club, go to the fucking alley and don't come back. Um, but so lots of people like shit on shit all over Taro and say like I know that. I, I, I've known the person who doesn't do well at work and who sucks at their job and they're always a moron and an idiot and, like, all this other stuff. And I think that's missing the point of Taro's character. I think the real point is that everybody has a different learning curve. And everybody starts from a different place. And Niamori just had her shit slightly more together than Taro did. Like, maybe she brushed her teeth in a different way every morning. It could be that simple. And, or maybe she happened to get the less strenuous episodes. It's that simple. And in the second season, what you see is you see Miyamori, like, hit the kind of wall that you would see Taro hit in the first season. And... She doesn't handle it well. And it's important to never think just because someone screws up a lot means that just because someone is posed like a screw-up is difficult does not necessarily mean that they are terrible at their job. It means that they're learning. And I I have been in situations in um, my creative career where I've been basically intentionally put behind the eight ball without my knowledge, and it's not fun. It's it, and I've been subject to to like astonishingly bad project managers, which in this show would be represented by production, by the production desk and product and production assistants. And it, it just not, it's not okay. <laughs> and it, the difference between Taro and Daisuke is Daisuke has existed in that, has existed in, like, production that he doesn't need to try too hard in for so many years that he has lost his path forward. Whereas Taro is learning, and he, Taro, I mean, Taro, it sounds insane when he says it, when he's like, I want to be a director, but you can see that path for him, and you can see him learning his way up to that. It'll be a struggle, and it might take him 20, 30 years, but he, but that is possible. Whereas Daisuke seems less like, he seems less like somebody who will be a great producer, and more like somebody who is just going to be a cog in a wheel. And the show, the second season, the latter half of the second season of um, of Shirobako shows that really starkly. And I, I think that if you watch the show, and or you watch the show, and you see Taro as like an annoying doofus, 
take another look at him because like in in the first season he fucks up. In the second season his fuck ups are like minor and he does his best to you know, welcome new people into the fold, help people when they need help, um be kind to new hires and in instead of doing what a bad senior employee does, which is when a new hire is hired, you start heaping stuff onto them, which I've had done to me. And it's like, I don't even have a password for my email yet. <laughs> and you're like giving me all of this horse shit. We need to get our shit together. We need to pause for five seconds. I know something due in like an hour, but that means that we have a full ten minutes to like lay out a schedule and stop freaking out and say, okay, this gets done first, this gets done second, this gets done third. And Taro is trying to do that for his for his um for the people who work under him at the, at the point at the point which you see him in the second season but the the two girls who work under him um I want the girl with the yellow haired name cuz she's really fascinating to me um a girl named Ando and another girl but and, and another girl are both really engaged and with it and they want to learn and they want to be helpful. But Daisuke is like, he, it's like he, it's like he's, um, what's his face from Lisa weapon. He's like, it's like sick. He's sick of everything all the time. And it's not, he, he, he's like too cool for school when school is requiring that you like, knuckle down and be a weirdo with everybody else. And by being too cool for school, he becomes a kind of obnoxious weak link. And it's in in a really volatile and affecting way that Taro would never. Like, in Taro's worst screw-ups, there was just a reprimanding that happened, and Taro was like, okay, I'm wrong. Not a ruler that gets thrown at somebody's head. Actually, hilariously, at Taro's head. And it is not his fault. And it... it so, uh, basically what I'm trying to say here, and I've, this podcast has gone on for an hour and a half, okay, um, is... That if you're really interested in, like, the way anime is made, I strongly encourage you to watch Shirobako. Um, but what I took away from it was a little different, and that is the kinds of personalities and the kinds of skills mixed into a creative atmosphere in a really true and honest way. I mean, I can attest as someone who has worked in advertising agencies, at magazines, at websites, that all of the, that all of these kinds of people 
exist. And if you're ever at a place where one of the, if you're ever, if you're a creative working out there right now, and you're at a place where one of these things doesn't exist, and there's no clear reason why, uh, take a look at that. Maybe take a look at that. But if you like this podcast, it happens every week. Um, you can go check out more episodes over at a over at the website that I have up for the podcast called Lunchbox Meet called Lunchbox Publishing. I almost said the other thing. Lunchboxpublishing.com. Um, there'll be a link in the description of this podcast that you can click on and you can go check out other episodes, including an episode on Silent Voice, an episode on Paranoid Agent. I don't think I've done an episode on Golden Boy yet. Wait for it. Um, <laughs> but you can also share this podcast with your friends. Um, you can review this podcast as being great. Five stars on um, anything that lets you review things. That helps out the podcast a Yeah.